Hey everyone, it's Jackie, Anita, and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Before we get into the news, I want to talk about our favorite algorithmic coin creator. He's he's got some news for us again. <laughs> Yes. Well, as we're recording this, we're seeing this unfold in real time where the South Korean government has issued an arrest warrant for one Do Kwon, the uh, founder of Terraform Labs, which you may recognize from us talking a ton about him related to the Luna coin meltdown and tens of billions of dollars of assets disappearing. So he's he hasn't been arrested, but there's an arrest warrant out there. We know where he is. Yeah, this is... Uh... <laughs> Don't think we know where he is. I know that he gave an interview recently from uh, Singapore, but now South Korea is looking for him. And I did notice that he tweeted a moon emoji earlier today. <laughs> so no clues about his whereabouts. However, um, he is still trying to go to the moon, I, I suppose. To the um, moon. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny because like Luna has actually like Luna Classic has been on kind of a tear the past couple weeks. It's been doing really well. And when this news got announced, it dropped by 50 percent. So I feel like I feel like the most hopeless situation that exists (laughs) in crypto finally had this inkling of hope. And then it just got dashed all of a sudden, which is very crypto. History repeating itself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about how to get into our next topic here, and I, I thought of something funny. I was thinking about shooting for the moon, but landing at KKR. So I'll let Jackie explain that. <laughs> yeah, so KKR, which is one of the biggest investment management firms in the U.S., it has about $491 billion in assets under management, has partnered with Securitize, a digital asset securities firm, to tokenize part of the firm's healthcare fund on the Avalanche blockchain. Had to say that slowly so we got this across correctly. But (laughs) (laughs) I spoke to the parties involved and Securitize's CEO, Carlos Domingo, and KKR's managing director, Dan Perrant, both said the fund has been in process for the past four years in the making, since basically early 2018. But it wasn't possible at the time due to a lot of limited infrastructure and blockchain technology not quite being there yet until now. But I think this fund is significant and the tokenization is significant because private equity in the past has primarily been available only to large institutions and the ultra high net worth individuals. Um, I say ultra because... You said that in a certain tone. Yeah. (laughs) It's worth noting that it'll be opened up to qualified purchasers, which accounts for like 2.6 million people in the U.S. And I'm not one of them yet because uh, it basically means it's a person or family business with an investment portfolio of $5 million or more. And I simply... Uh, I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) I'm not one of those investors at the moment. But this fund allows for a broader access to private market investing, even if it is these high net worth individuals. They are not the ultra high net worth individuals. And the blockchain technology, they say, helps make it more efficient. So these quote unquote lower amounts being invested by investors can be done without like all the tedious work involved that maybe is worth it for larger institutions. And then Carlos Domingo, the CEO of Securitize, said that he hopes that it will then trickle into other investor pools like accredited investors. And then maybe over time, those smaller players like retail investors. Like you and I. Yeah, like (laughs) you and I. But maybe over time, we will become the big shot. So... Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's what they keep telling yeah. us. <laughs> but I think there's a lot to say about the future of tokenization. There's opportunities for things to be tokenized and like anything that has cash value might have the opportunity to get to that level 
over time. And although we have fast forwarded to today compared to 2018, when they said these talks started, there is better technology that allows for tokenization to be possible, but there's still a lot of improvements needed for more participants to get into this space. And so like the road ahead is pretty long, but it seems like it's opening up a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, when like the uh, stodgy private equity firms are starting to talk about tokens and crypto, like things have changed pretty significantly in the past couple of years, right? Like, (laughs) I don't know that KKR is known for being hip and cool, but they do have Evan Spiegel on their board, which is a fun fact. Thank you. (laughs) He's hip and cool, right? (laughs) I know, Jackie, you and I were having a little back and forth on this before we started recording. And I wanted to to sort of bring up a little pushback, you know, respectfully on this idea that tokenization is such a great thing and is going to broaden access to retail investors. Because I think we talk a lot in fintech and crypto about like democratizing access to asset classes. But I was thinking structurally about how these private equity funds work. And it's kind of crazy to me that like even a qualified buyer with 5 million in investments prior to this wasn't able to access a KKR private equity fund. And the reason for that, as far as my knowledge and And my background is like, I'm pretty sure the reason that they don't do that is like KKR and other big private equity funds don't want small investors in their fund because the small investors aren't going to be paying a high enough fee to justify all of the reporting costs and the processes that KKR would have to to go through. And the reason a lot of those costs are high is because of regulation, right? Like there's a bunch of disclosures that they have to give. And so if you're not a huge investor who's coming in with billions of dollars, like a, you know, a giant pension fund or something like that, like KKR doesn't even want to talk to you because you're not worth their time. So my take on this news when I read it was kind of like, I mean, it's interesting that they're tokenizing the fund. They're only tokenizing about a half of it, I think, if I recall that correctly. So it's not the whole thing, but even if that's good news, like KKR could have just opened up access regardless. Like they didn't need the blockchain. They didn't need tokenization. If they felt that the cost would be worth it, then they could have done that before. And I know I know from what I've heard, you know, from various sources on Wall Street and that sort of thing, that firms like KKR are increasingly competing for smaller investors. Like they want to lure right. the family offices. They want to lure like, you know, the high net worth individuals because I'm not exactly sure why. That's like maybe a topic for another day. But I know that, um, Jackie, you were sort of mentioning the benefits of this, but I wanted to bring back that, you know, this might not actually democratize anything because KKR is sort of making this decision and saying, hey, we're going to tokenize this fund. We're going to open it up to qualified purchasers. But are they really ever going to open it up to retail investors? Like, are those fees ever going to be worth it for them? I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up good points, Anita, and I'm not a representative for KKR, but... (laughs) I will say, I think the blockchain aspect is what makes it more available to individual or family office investors because it's expediting things and making it more efficient so they don't have to do all that tedious work for smaller tickets. Like you mentioned, they don't want to have smaller players involved unless it's easy for them, it almost feels like. But I think in general, there's a lot of opportunity in general beyond this deal for blockchain technology to play a role in the entire value chain of markets beyond just private equity and opportunity for more asset managers to get in the space, whether or not they have good intentions, as you mentioned. During a panel I moderated earlier this week at SALT, John Wu, the president of Ava Labs, joked that, uh, but I don't think he was joking either. <laughs> he said on stage that during our 45-minute panel, he got three asset managers texting him on his Apple Watch asking to get lunch after the news came out. That's so hilarious. <laughs> this is going to become a bigger thing, I think, as more players want to get in and they get a little FOMO that KKR beat them to it. <laughs> right. And and to be fair, like, I don't know exactly what the blockchain is streamlining here. You know, I don't know the details of the technology. I don't know what mm-hmm. processes are being made more efficient. My guess is that the reason that they're so burdensome in the first place is because of regulations that you can't really change with, with tech. But maybe that's not true. And um, 
that's one of my open questions is like, what is being made easier here by the blockchain? And are these asset managers texting John Woo because they want the uh, marketing and the clout and the hype associated with it? Or are they texting him because they want to actually streamline their processes? Are they for the people? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's also telling like which fund they're tokenizing here. It's not like they're tokenizing a digital asset fund Mm -hmm. or like something investing in emerging tech that would like be broadly interesting to like a crypto native audience. Mm -hmm. They're focused on their kind of bread and butter and like getting them loosely involved in kind of the idea of tokenizing a PE fund. So I might cite a little bit more on on Anita's side here where I'm like not entirely sure who they're serving with this. That's okay. That's what we're here for, guys. Good discussion. (laughs) Discussion and debate. (laughs) Speaking of multiple sides being involved in things. Anita, you want to dive into the next topic? Thanks for the transition, Jackie. I do, I do. So it's on the same note of institutions wanting to get more involved in crypto. And so the news this week was that a bunch of big financial institutions, mostly asset managers, including Fidelity, Schwab, and Citadel, are launching this new exchange that's supposed to go live in November and then officially launch to the public in January, a new crypto exchange. And the underlying technology is being built by the Members Exchange, MEMX. It's this equity exchange. It's basically a group of like nine major financial institutions. So some of them are the ones I named before, like I believe Citadel is a member and then Bank of America is also involved. So they're building the underlying tech and they have some really big backers of this project as well. So Paradigm, Sequoia Capital, Virtue Financial, which is a huge trading firm. And this is just a sign that like a bunch of huge players in the industry are coming together. They're trying to build this infrastructure for the market. And what they're trying to achieve with this is more efficiency, more liquidity, and they're ultimately trying to lower the costs for trading. So it's a huge move. I mean, I think like the question that I first thought of is like, who exactly is the target audience for this? And I know you had some thoughts on that. So yeah, I'm curious to see who the clientele for this will be. Obviously, assuming it's going to be traditional investors, but how can they appeal to them when there are a lot of skeptics out there? And then also, how can they appeal to the crypto audiences who are happy with whatever exchanges centralized or decentralized that they're engaging in right now? Like, why would they want to go and use a big exchange? It almost feels like maybe this isn't for the common retail investor. It's interesting to me. I feel like one of the big arguments that you could say in favor of an organization like this is just the regulatory prowess, where it's just like you have nine huge institutions that have deep ties, for better or worse, probably worse, with the, <laughs> with the regulatory bodies of the U.S. government. And in some ways, we're like... Brian Armstrong is rolling up into DC and trying to get meetings with all these people and like figure out how they're thinking about regulation of crypto. These people are already in those rooms talking about much broader, much heavier asset classes. So I feel like they probably are a little bit closer to the faucet of Intel. And yeah, they're a little more seasoned. (laughs) Right. And they already have like deep relationships that like the government's probably not going to compromise their relationship with some of these big firms just because of some puny trillion dollar asset class. They're systemically important. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I thought it was funny because what this showed to me is, first of all, like crypto is here to stay. Like institutions are interested in it. At least that's my read on the situation is when you see all of these banks and financial firms that were so skeptical of crypto at one point, now suddenly being like, let's get in on this. Let's build an exchange. You know, let's try to lower costs and make crypto trading easier. Like even in a bear market right now, the fact that they're making that move, I think is hugely significant. And there's a lot of financial firms whose leaders who have talked shit about crypto. But I I do want to call out Mr. Uh, Ken Griffin of Citadel, founder, 
And he once called crypto a jihadist call, I believe is what he called it, a jihadist call against the U.S. dollar. And now he's changed his mind and he's called it one of the greatest stories in finance over the course of the last 15 years. Maybe it's humility, maybe it's something else, but that's not for me to judge. I just think it's pretty wild that all of these financial leaders are now coming together and they've totally changed their tune. And I'm sure they're trying to position themselves for whatever the next bull run is is going to be. Maybe it's a cash grab. Yeah. Well, because when I look at this and I see all these major financial institutions coming together, like the thing that I'm thinking of is Facebook stablecoin and how they had their kind of all of the financial institutions backing Backing it up, basically. But, you know, when I saw that, I was like, okay, well, like PayPal could have done something on their own and they're very well positioned, but instead they're backing this other effort. So when I see this, I'm thinking, all right, here are nine major financial institutions that could have done their own thing, but it's safer for them to kind of all partner together and release one product. So they're not really interested in competing in this. They just want exposure to it. So like maybe this is just a safer option for them as opposed to do we need a Fidelity exchange, a Schwab exchange and a Citadel exchange? No, they probably know that. And they probably know that they have a, a tall challenge battling crypto native firms like FTX and Coinbase pro offerings. Uh, yeah, it raises the question. I, I think that's a totally fair point, Lucas. And I think it raises the question of like, are they actually going to be effective in rolling this out? Like we don't know the details. We don't know if they're actually going to achieve the stated goals. I see Jackie smirking <laughs> Yeah, what do, we, what do we got here, Jackie? <laughs> it literally reminds me of when Coinbase rolled out their NFT marketplace and everyone was so hyped for it. And then it just like kind of failed. No offense to Coinbase. And I feel like hopefully this... <laughs> you can offend them. We often do here. <laughs> hopefully the EDX crypto exchange has its own fate, whether good or bad. That's not for me to decide. But it almost feels a little tone deaf, in my opinion, because like you're right. They are holding hands to create this together because they think it's a safe bet. But it also doesn't feel like they really believe in it and they're okay with if it fails. But they want to look like, hey, we're in this, we're doing it. Crypto's cool. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it pans out over the next few months after launching and if it actually is successful like they want it to be. Yeah. And one intriguing point to note on that front of competition and like, can they really compete with the more crypto native firms is Fred Ursam, the founder of Paradigm, is also founder of Coinbase, co-founder, and he's on the Coinbase board. And Paradigm actually is one of the backers of this project. So it seems like at least, you know, some crypto native people with a lot of clout in the community have faith that this will take off. I just thought that was a little funny and interesting because Coinbase is going to directly compete with this exchange and Coinbase has been trying to push their institutional offering. So you have a little head-to-head. I don't want to say like conflict of interest because that might be too far, but... (laughs) The idea of conflict of interest, I feel like, means something completely different to crypto VCs than it means to any other type of investor. They're like, well, you know, technically they're different because they have different names. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like... I think this comes at what is really the most fast transitional time for crypto exchanges generally, which we've talked about here time and time again, where they can't compete on transaction fees anymore. They're all having to diversify their businesses. Coinbase has had a stranglehold on U.S. retail investors, but now FTX, Binance US, they're all coming in. They're really having to compete on product. They're having to sell subscription products. Meanwhile, one could argue that there's going to be less attention paid towards institutional products at these companies, especially that's not where FTX US and Binance US are really looking. So if Coinbase is kind of worried about their bread and butter retail, they're probably going to be a little less focused on institutions. One could argue that, giving room for EDXM. There we go. 
It's uh, we'll we'll definitely have to see whether you know whether this takes off and whether they're able to meaningfully challenge any of the incumbents. But I know that we have some regulatory news that we want to talk about, so maybe let's get into that. Yes, as <laughs> the Biden administration, I feel like people in the crypto community were concerned about generally what like a Democrat-led presidential administration would do for crypto. And like things have been going pretty well, I'd say, for the crypto industry. Biden has been pretty friendly over the most part. Like they issued this executive order in March that everyone was kind of sweating over. And when it came out, he was basically like, I want all of these government three-letter orgs to spend a lot of time thinking about what crypto means to, you know, to what work they do, and then kind of issuing some reports, basically. So that's all that's been happening. Last Ooh, week, more they, reports. I know, we some, <laughs> some very exciting, dangerous reports. Last week, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy released this 51-page report. And TLDR, they basically were urging that crypto miners should reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They're kind of thinking that like, this is something that regulators should be taking a closer eye at and particularly with an eye on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, which is something that we've already seen in a few jurisdictions and places like New York have been kind of looking at crypto mining bans. And this is really coming as the U.S. becomes a bigger hub for crypto mining across the world. There were a few things that were interesting. A report was issued a week before Ethereum's much-hyped merge, which we've talked about before, where Ethereum will be transitioning from a proof-of-work network to a proof-of-stake network, dramatically reducing its global energy usage. In this report, they said that Ethereum currently uses between 20 and I think 37 or 39 percent of the total footprint of crypto energy usage. And yeah, this report was tossing out a lot of the same facts and figures we've seen previously. It's using a small country's worth of kilowatt hours, like every transaction uses a non-trivial portion of a U.S. household's total energy usage per year. So it was it, this was kind of a little bit of like a rundown of like what's happening right now. But I think that the TLDR like main takeaway from this is that Bitcoin is going to find itself a little more politically isolated going forward. And regulators are going to stop talking about crypto and they're going to start talking about what Bitcoin can do better because Ethereum's not going to be really in the conversation around energy usage quite as much. So it's really going to be the U.S. regulators and the EPA versus Bitcoin, not versus crypto, which I think is going to be a pretty interesting saga to see play out. Yeah, it's, it's going to be spicy. I think that Bitcoin versus crypto distinction has been teased out a lot more in like recent conversations. It's something that I didn't even fully understand before. I'm like, why do people get so touchy when I say like, oh, you're you're a crypto fan? And they're like, no, 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 I'm a Bitcoin fan. And yeah, this is only going to make the rift wider because Ethereum is just handling their energy usage and Bitcoin seems to have no plans to do that. Yeah. And like Bitcoin is fundamentally a little bit more like anti-establishment than people building VC-backed Web3 projects. I know that that's a controversial <laughs> statement to the Ethereum community, <laughs> but I will say like the underlying ethos of Bitcoin is very much tied in some like anarchist undertones. Whereas like I get Ethereum and a lot of the other blockchains are still very much about trustless systems that are censorship resistant, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, everything that's kind of being outlined in this report spells an interesting future for Bitcoin. I will say this report is like they're talking about talking about having other people talk about making decisions down the road. Yeah. So it's not like anything imminent is going to happen. And it, this was far from urging the Biden administration to like have a sudden crackdown. So it's not like this affected crypto prices in any way. But it is more communication from an administration that sits atop the leading hash rate provider of, of the world. There's a lot of talk, I feel yeah, like, I'm, with the uh, government <laughs> in terms of like, we're going to regulate Tell it. us, Jackie. We're, we're going <laughs> to regulate you guys. 
but we're not going to do it right now. And I felt like it really only comes after like catastrophic events. I remember when uh, we had Terra Luna collapse and then there was like all this conversation around stable coins. And they're like, we're going to regulate it by the end of the year. And it's September. We have three months till the end of the year and still really not much going on on that front. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they actually follow up with anything off this report or if it's just another like nothing burger from them. <laughs> I really can't see if the EPA updates its guidance and has all these different rules that they like enact maybe in the next couple of years. I just I can't see them getting widespread support for doing something with Bitcoin mining. There are just so many different senators and congressmen who like see this as a populist platform for them to run with. And I just it I don't think they're going to get the same widespread support for this. So like, I'm skeptical that there's going to be any like near term regulation on Bitcoin mining. Yeah, I mean, look, if you can't get it done in a bear market, are you ever going to get it done regulatory wise? Like, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't disagree. (laughs) So this week, I covered a report on how four major crypto entities hold over half the staked Ethereum out there. And then I dove into some research and had conversations about whether or not that matters for a network that aims to be decentralized. So it was a pretty interesting story, I think. Sounds spicy. (laughs) This week, I talked to a handful of startups that are raising new funding from all of that venture capital money that hasn't really been deployed in the past quarter. But they're raising new funding for ideas related to how they can level up how NFTs are used in creative industries. So you can read more about that sometime later this week on TechCrunch.com. As for me, my mind has been on the merge, just like everyone else's. But um, I've also (laughs) been thinking about what pockets of crypto have been resilient, even though we're having a market downturn. And one of the biggest ones is infrastructure. So I covered a funding round earlier this week for a crypto data firm called Gold Sky that's building out some crypto data infrastructure earlier this week. But I'm also super excited because I've been planning my outfits for some of our fall events. (laughs) You know, stay tuned. The biggest event is Disrupt, and it's going to be in San Francisco this October. You can get 15% off tickets with the promo code REACT. And if you can't join us in person, you can use the promo code REACT as well for 25% off on an annual pass for a TechCrunch Plus membership service. We'll be back every week with the top news on the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Tuesdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform, and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-hosts, Lucas Matney and Jackie Melanick. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.